Hello, everyone. I hope you're doing well on this Mother's Day, probably the most unusual Mother's Day for, for many moms. Uh, perhaps you can't see your kids because of the coronavirus, and that's hard. Or maybe you've seen your kids so much. <laughs> what, would be a, what, a, what would be a great Mother's Day would be a break from your kids. I don't know, but we are, are praying especially for moms today. You know, during the uh, coronavirus, you have a lot of time to sit around and watch something on television. And so Nancy and I have been watching biographies and things of uh, history. And we've come across this great Ken Burns uh, documentary about the Dust Bowl. The Dust Bowl. I grew up in Oklahoma. And I remember talking a lot about the Dust Bowl. And the Dust Bowl, if you're not familiar with it, was uh, a 10-year period basically in the 30s uh, where there was a tremendous amount of drought and wind, and that got coupled with uh, plowing up a, a vast uh, amount of land to plant wheat, and those things came together to create what was called the Dust Bowl. And it's really uh, fascinating. It's a little bit hard to watch during the coronavirus because it's so depressing. Uh, but one of the things that was very interesting about it was how wrong the experts were on their predictions. So you watch through it, and it talks about one, one guy who is the chancellor of a Midwestern university, and his prediction was that climate change was on the horizon, and there was going to be more rain and less wind. <laughs> so he says that in the late 20s, and here you have a decade of no wind and complete, uh, or complete wind and no rain. And then there was another guy who was saying that actually when you pull up the prairie grass, it actually helps the soil. And so these things were just completely uh, wrong by these guys who were the experts of the field. And I don't have to tell you that living through the last two months, uh, we all know that making erroneous statements about our current condition or erroneous predictions about the future isn't limited to the Dust Bowl. Uh, my guess is that everybody watching this has made one of those kinds of statements. And it usually starts out like this. Well, I'm sure that... And then you say something, only to find out like 24 hours later, you're completely wrong. And I don't need to pick on anybody else. I can just pick on myself. So I'm sure that they're not going to cancel the NCAA basketball tournament. I mean, that would be crazy. And then 24 hours later, they cancel the tournament. I'm sure that we won't cancel church. I mean, why would we cancel church? That's crazy. Well, here we are, week eight of canceling church. Or, I'm sure that your wedding in April is fine. I'm sure you're fine. Uh, I'm sure that your wedding in May is fine. I'm sure that your wedding in June is fine. I mean, I have said all of those things, and so that's enough humble pie for me today. I'm sure you have one of those things that you have said, uh, but when you're living through these kind of unprecedented times, it stirs up a lot of questions that are in search of an answer. And that's what we have today is we have a lot of questions that rumble through our minds about what's happening today. How should I think about this? I have a lot of questions. I'm not sure what the answers are. And what I want to do is just touch on a few big questions. I wish I had time to unpack them more, but I thought it would just be appropriate on the timing to, to touch on a few questions that I hear going around and my hope is not to be somebody that is like the expert in the room and makes a prediction. My hope is to be a person in a dark room who's just trying to raise the one slat on a window shade. 
and just hope that the Bible gives some light to a current question that we wrestle with, current circumstance that we're in. So here are the four questions I want to address. Again, just trying to touch on them, not tackle them. How do I approach people who are suffering? How do I approach people suffering? There are lots of, there's lots of suffering. How do I approach people? Secondly, is COVID-19 God's judgment? Is it like an Old Testament plague that God is judging uh, the nation or God is judging the world? Shouldn't the church gather together, because that's what it says in the Bible we should do, uh, even if the government says that we shouldn't gather together? That's a question that gets circled around. And the final question I want to touch on is just, how should I be preparing myself for when we regather together, whenever that is? What could I be doing now to prepare myself? So, wow, (laughs) those are four big questions. Again, I'm going to try to touch on those. And my hope is at the end of the sermon, you'll have a chance with your family or your friends to sit around and just just pause and say, hey, which one of those questions caused you um, to think about something new? Or uh, how would you maybe answer that question? Or what kind of light did we get by, by raising that one slat and looking into God's Word? So first question, how do we approach people who are in pain? Now, the pandemic has created an enormous amount of pain. You've seen these very touching pictures with uh, parents uh, who are inside a house and, and a and a uh, child who has to be outside the house, maybe especially around nursing homes, and you've heard the stories of these people dying uh, alone. It's caused a lot of relational pain. It's caused a lot of financial pain. certainly caused a lot of uh, physical and emotional pain. So how do, I, how do I address somebody who's in pain? And again, I'm just trying to open up one slat, and I want to do that by looking at John chapter 11. It's a very familiar story. Jesus has three great friends that he uses their house as kind of a bed and breakfast. And these three great friends all happen to be in the same family, Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. And Jesus is someplace away from their hometown and gets news that Lazarus, really one of his best friends, is close to death. And Mary and Martha are asking Jesus to come and and be with him and I think hopefully heal him. Um, And so when Jesus hears this message, here's one of the most curious verses in the whole Bible. Verse 4, he actually delays, or actually verse 6, when Jesus heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So Jesus hears a a call for an emergency, and you, you get the feeling that Mary and Martha's emergency isn't Jesus's emergency, and it creates a, a host of questions. And then you find out the reason, which is really critical, uh, verse 4, this illness does not lead to death. This is John chapter 11, verse 4. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So, so Jesus's delay is for the glory of God. Jesus's delay is for the glory of Jesus. Now, this is, this is very important. I want you to listen carefully. I want you to lean in, and I want to say this just right. Jesus' delay caused death and pain. It caused the death of his friend. It caused the pain in his sister's. 
And Jesus's delay was for God's glory and Jesus's glory. So I'm drawing this conclusion. God's glory is more important than your death and your pain. Just, you just need to let that sink in and think about it. You're going to need some time to talk about it, that God's glory is more important than your death and your pain. And I'm concluding that God's glory actually can be shown through your death and your pain. Your death and your pain actually can be an opportunity for God's glory to shine through. He can use that. So in the Christian worldview, death and pain actually don't get the last word. And that's one of the things that Jesus is trying to help us see, that the death is not the end. It's, it's not the end here. There's a whole eternal life. And so Jesus, again, his emergency, our emergency isn't often Jesus's emergency because he has a totally different time frame in his mind. And so God may be delaying answers to your prayers, and that delay could tragically end in death or pain, but it doesn't mean God can't redeem your suffering for glory. Of course it doesn't. If I was in the sanctuary, I'd be pointing to the cross right now. I mean, here, here's the most painful thing that's ever happened on the planet, and it, and it was the death of God himself, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And yet this moment creates the greatest amount of glory that we celebrate. So our death, our pain can be redeemed for glory. I wish I had time to think more about that. So I'm just touching on that. You, you're going to want to tackle it in a conversation. Finally, Jesus does arrive a couple of days late, and he meets uh, these two sisters who both are in pain. But what I think is interesting here is he has two different uh, approaches to these two people. One, because they, they have different kinds of uh, questions. First, when he meets Mary, her pain, in her pain, she's actually looking for an answer. She's looking for an intellectual discussion. She comes up to Jesus and they have a discussion. And uh, so Jesus engages Mar Martha in this intellectual discussion. And one of the interesting th scenes that I have in my mind here is here they are, they're very near or maybe even at the graveyard where Lazarus is buried. And they're having a discussion, and in this graveyard, Jesus turns to Martha and says, well, Martha, what do you believe? Now, there, there can't be a better setting for that question than a graveyard. Here we are. Here we are at this graveyard. We're all going to end up here, Martha. So what do you believe? Let, let's get all the way down to the bottom of what you believe. And she says, I believe in the resurrection. And you know the great retort by Jesus, well, I am the resurrection. In other words, your questions are answered in my being here. I'm, I am what you are looking for. And you can trust that even though I've delayed according to your timetable, Martha, that I'm here. I'm in control. And whether your brother is dead here and I am going to raise him back to life here in a few moments, or he dies and there is a future resurrection, your answer to your questions is me. And Martha, I need you to be focused on me even if I'm in delay, even in death. I need you to trust me. When you engage someone in pain, if they're 
searching for answers, and that's a big if, because some people in pain aren't actually looking for an answer. We'll get to that with Mary in a moment. But in, in suffering, and a lot of people are in suffering, they're looking for answers. And this is such a great opportunity for us to engage with people and provide hope. Because so many people have different worldviews that now this pain collides with what do I do with my worldview with all this pain? Then let me just give you one example. The pretty well-known atheist Richard Dawkins, he wrote a book, and this is what he concludes. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is no design, no purpose, no evil, no good. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. I mean, what, what a painful worldview. What a grim worldview. There's no hope. There's no purpose. I mean, we stand here at a pandemic and say, well, these are things that happen, just natural causes. And, you know, it's, there's nothing good or evil anyway, so it's just move on. And I think most people in a pandemic want to think there's got to be something more than that. that. That answer isn't emotionally or even intellectually satisfying to me in this moment. And so at this moment, when somebody has that kind of worldview, the pain that they're in, the loss that they may be experiencing, may be a crack in the door for them to say, maybe my worldview doesn't hold up in a pandemic, doesn't hold up in a cemetery. I think I mentioned to you a a guy that I sent a video um, a couple of weeks ago from the Atlantic. He was a philosopher his name is Herbert Fingeret, and I'll resend it to you. But if you remember, he wrote a book on death, and basically he's an atheist saying, death is the end, so you shouldn't be afraid of death. That was the whole premise of his book. Don't be afraid of death because it's just the end. But after his wife died, he began to reconsider what he wrote. And there's a very, very moving moment in this little short film where he sits in his chair and he's listening to a beautiful piece of music and he tells you that this is the music that often he and his wife would listen to. And then he just recounts different parts of their life together. And at the very end, he said, we would listen to this music and we would hold hands. And then he just starts sobbing. He's experienced something beautiful. He's experienced something good. And here he is looking at death and saying, my worldview is breaking open. I, I, it doesn't hold the weight of my personal experience. I, I can't say there is no good or there is no evil. I've, I've personally experienced it. And so the whole question he's asking in this short film is, maybe I've gotten it wrong. And this could be a moment, this moment of pandemic, this moment of pain, could be a moment for some of your friends to ask a question, well, what do you believe? And you could step in with the hope of the gospel. So Martha, in her pain, she's looking for an answer. She's looking for truth. She's looking for Jesus to teach her something. That's not how Mary is approached. Mary, in her pain, she's she's not looking for an answer. She's looking for a tear. It's very interesting when Jesus approached Mary. He doesn't actually even say anything to Mary comes to Mary he looks at Mary Mary sobbing and Jesus wept that's his only response to Mary 
And for many people in pain, if you're trying to give an answer when they're looking for a tear, that's not a good plan. All they want you to do is just sit down and try to hold on to a little piece of their pain and understand. You don't even have to say anything. You just have to be near. And then after time goes by and those tears dry up, there'll be a moment to say something. And they'll know that you entered into their pain. You care enough to to hold on to some piece of their pain. And then maybe they'll be asking, well, what gets you through these kinds of moments? So, so how do we approach people in suffering? Very, very carefully. We trust that God's in control. So whether there's a delay or uh, an unanswered prayer, we're, we're looking and focused on Jesus. We trust that there is a hope that, so that death and pain doesn't get the last word. And we're careful. We're, we're, we use some emotional intelligence as we walk into a conversation to say, maybe all they need is a tear. Maybe they just need us to hold hands. Or maybe they're asking questions, and this is the moment to try to answer, answer a question about Jesus. It's a, maybe even it's just a moment to back up from that to, to expose the weakness of their own worldview at this moment. Again, so much more could be said here, but I'm just trying to touch on one question. The second question, is the COVID-19 plague God's judgment? Now, probably you've all heard of karma, this sort of Buddhist idea that you, you get what you deserve. Um, if you believe in karma, if that's your worldview, and many people do, then what you would conclude is that the, the 4 million people who've gotten COVID, the 275,000 people who've died from the disease, well, they got what they deserved. Again, I think that's a tough worldview during a pandemic. And so if somebody believes in that, you'd want to try to track that down with them. But my point here in the second point is there's a kind of uh, what one scholar said, a Christian karma, which is not positive. But he says what happens with uh, a plague is that people um, in the Christian worldview, they say something like this. Well, the reason Katrina hit New Orleans the reason planes crashed into the Twin Towers in New York City, the reason there's a, a coronavirus that's attacking the world is because of God's judgment. And it's a Christianized way of saying, well, people are getting what they deserve. You probably heard that. You might have even said that at some point. And here I think we need to be really very, very careful. That's going to be my main caution on this point is to be very careful. Uh, there certainly are plagues in the Bible that are a part of God's judgment. We're gonna, when we get back to 2 Samuel, we'll see at the very end of 2 Samuel, there is a plague that is a result of God's judgment on David. But I would, what I would want to say, unless that you, you see a plague assigned in the Bible by God to a certain situation, then you're going to want to be very careful to assign some kind of plague to God. Instead, I think we need to get our cues from how Jesus answers a question like this. And that comes from our reading that we heard this morning in Luke chapter 13. So let's turn to this, just very few verses here. Uh, some people are talking to Jesus and they come up to him. And 
I don't know if Jesus hadn't heard the story, but they tell them, they recount this news story that several people in Galilee had been put to death in this really brutal massacre. And the way they say the story in Jesus' response, you understand that they're saying, well, I think these people got what they deserved. That's the kind of the question they're left with. They leave Jesus with. And Jesus actually answers them with another story. And it's another tragic story about a tower that fell and 18 people died. And he asked them this question, uh, well, did you hear about that? And do you think those who were massacred or those who were killed by the tower were worse sinners than everybody else? Because some people didn't get massacred and some people missed the tower. So do you think that because they weren't killed, somehow they were better? And Jesus doesn't even wait for their answer. He says, no, that's not true. That's not how I want you to think. I don't want you to think that somehow the people who escaped the tower falling on them were better than anybody else. I don't want you to look at tragedy and assume people died because they deserved it. And the people who survived, then somehow they were better than everybody else. Jesus is saying you can't do that when you're looking at tragedy. Instead... And this is brilliant by Jesus, such a great teacher. Verse 5, he shifts the focus. Unless you repent, you die. You see what he's doing so brilliantly? These people are looking at tragedy, and they're trying to do two things. They're trying to say, well, I think God's judging people. So here's what the first thing I'm doing. I'm getting in God's mind, and I'm reading his mind. Then the second thing I'm doing is I'm judging the sinfulness of these people. I'm getting in their lives, and I'm saying they're really sinners, so they deserve a tower to fall on. And Jesus takes the whole thing and says, guys, those two events, they were meant for you to look at you, not look at God or look at, look at somebody else. But I need you to look at your own heart. I need you to examine your own heart. If you don't repent, then you're going to die. So let's let's... Let's be careful when we hear these terms or these thoughts by people assigning motive to God that may or may not be there, assigning sort of some measure of sinfulness to people who are affected by the tragedy like somehow they deserve it. I think God would want to take this whole event and turn it on ourselves and say, well, Paul, what about you? What about the condition of your heart? You know, whether we die of this pandemic or we die of a greater pandemic called sin, one day we're going to die. And we need to be examining ourselves right now, and it's a great time for people to, to think about that because of what's happening. This massive amount of death and displacement, it serves like a, a thunderclap. A thunderclap to look at your own, own soul. Not to try to think about what God's doing or where somebody else is, but where you are. Third, questions. Shouldn't the church be meeting together even if the government says no? Now, not a, not a lot of people think this, but you get on certain blogs and websites, you hear this kind of conversation going around. And some Christians might say it's crucial for us to meet together, and I would definitely agree with that. I do believe it is crucial for us to meet together. Um, and even in the Bible, if you look at Hebrews 10, it says don't neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. And so why, why are we taking our cues, Paul, from the government or the governor rather than our cues from Scripture? Isn't that what we're supposed to be doing here? 
And I would make a couple of comments here. First of all, the word neglect is a strong word in the Greek, and it means willful desertion. So it's when you're neglecting from meeting together, the, they're saying what's happening is you're, you're willfully deserting. You can meet together, but you just say, I don't need that. I don't want that. It's not necessary for me. And, and the writer in Hebrews is saying, don't think that way. You definitely do be, need to be meeting together. But I think what we're doing in the last eight weeks and for some weeks going forward isn't, wouldn't qualify as willful desertion. I think it qualifies more as wisdom, and it falls under this category that we have here in Second Peter, again, which we read today. For the Lord's sake, we're submitting to human institutions. We're honoring the, the governor. And here, Peter, he's in a terrible place uh, politically as a Christian, and yet he's saying this as he writes from Rome that these people are somehow installed by God and we need to be people who submit to what they're saying. And now you and I may agree or disagree with our, our governor on what he's doing, but he's trying his best to try to figure out how to uh, maintain or lower the curve and, and prevent death at the same time, trying to figure out how to have the economy go at the same time. These are very difficult decisions. And, and the expectation Peter, I believe, would have for us if we could just lift one little slat on the window is to say, hey, I think you need to work towards this to, to honor the governor. I think also by not meeting together during this time, we've, we've actually fulfilled another law of loving your neighbor as yourself. So I'm not a carrier and giving it to a bunch of other people or somebody else isn't coming in and carrying it to my house and then I bring it back. So I think this social distancing, as difficult as it is, is part of loving your neighbor well. Now you might say, hey, Paul, what about you know Acts chapter 4 when Peter is given a direct order by the authorities not to preach and he goes on to preach? What about that? And I would say, oh, I'm just touching on this right now. I'm not trying to tackle it. And so I'm going to let you look that up and try to answer that one for yourself. All right, final question here this morning. How should we prepare ourselves for regathering together? Uh, I would say that coming back together really poses a pretty significant challenge. And... I just wish, this is what I wish every day, that we could just open the doors and it would be just like March the 10th or whenever the last time we met together. That everything that you saw the last time you were together would just be exactly the same. That's really what I wish. But it's so complicated. It is so complicated. I want you to turn to somebody in your family right now and just say, hey, it's complicated. Because it's complicated. And so because it's complicated... It's not easy just to reopen. And first of all, it's complicated because we can't guarantee that the COVID virus will be gone by the time we open our doors. Probably won't be. It's complicated because people vary widely on what they think is safe. So any one person is going to think maybe very differently from another person. It's complicated because you've got social distancing in a church. That's the last thing we want to do in a worship service is social distance. Let me just mention a fraction of a few point of some of the points that we have to cover here, just so you get a little taste of it. Uh, should we open our doors on the soonest possible Sunday? Should we wait till the fall? 
should we wait till 2021, which I actually know several churches who are planning on the first date to be a date some Sunday in 2021. What about communion? Should we sing? Singing has the same sort of projection as coughing. So should we all get together and cough for 20 minutes in the sanctuary? Should we wear masks? Uh, what about the offering? Should we pass that around? Should we pass out bulletins? Should we, should we pass around Bibles? Should we do a meet and greet? Should we have a nursery? How many services should we have? We've had two. We need to extend that to three or four, five, in order to accommodate social distancing. How long should those services be? What about coffee? I mean, we can't have a worship service without coffee. What about the water fountain? Everybody's touching that. What about doorknobs? See, it's, compl- it's complicated. Every little thing is complicated. But here's my answer of how you can be preparing yourself. Verses 16 and 17 of First uh, Peter. Live as a servant of God. If you just have that mindset that, that I'm here to serve, I'm just living as a servant of God. I'm, I'm not above anybody. I'm just here to try to work in the way God wants me to do. And then he follows it, honor everyone and love the brotherhood. So maybe we, we just should have that over the door as you, as you walk in. You know, live as a servant, honor everyone, love the brotherhood. Because, you know, not everybody's going to get their way. You're going to walk away and say, ah, you know, I think that's crazy. And maybe it, look, maybe it is crazy. I don't know. That's complicated. But, but I think what we can do is no matter how this works out, and maybe God doesn't even care how it works out. He cares how we work it out. He might just say, I want to make it so complicated that I just want to find out if they really love each other or they really love themselves. That, that could be the whole test here. I don't know. I'm just trying to open a slat and let some light come in. But I believe that God is looking at us and how we're treating each other in this regathering time as a great moment to, to see if we really honor other people. If we love the brotherhood. Well, my hope uh, today is just do same as every other Sunday. We, we live in a dark world. We, we don't often know what God's doing, but we have the Bible. It's a source of light. It's a guide, a light into our path. And today I just wanted to open up the slat today and just try to let some light in. And again, my hope is that you'll have some time to, to process some of these questions. And really, I really am hoping this, that you're going to email me back. Uh, these are kinds of conversations I would really enjoy uh, in between the services or after the services, but I don't get to do that today. And so I want you to say, hey, I heard what you said, and this is what I think. That would be really a joy uh, for me. So take time to do that uh, today or tomorrow or sometime this week. Let's uh, pray together. Heavenly Father, um, what's complicated from our viewpoint is so simple for you. You you see everything with absolute clarity. You know everything. There's nothing hidden. 
And so we are, we are beneficiaries of your grace, your willingness to come down and help us with your word, your willingness to walk alongside of us, to provide us with the Holy Spirit. And even in death and pain, to say, hey, they don't get the final word. So, Lord, would we, would we use this pandemic in a way that we look at ourselves and we readjust our lives to glorifying you? Help us to know how to care for our city, how to love each other, and how to walk in your ways. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in peace.